Yeah, hold that, please. Level five, thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to attend the Biparsal Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to attend the Channelized Bing Bingus at the Biparsal Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM, after the lights go out, on TalkSport. I'm Steve Harmison. I represented England in 63 tests and 58 one-day internationals and won the Ashes twice with my country. And I'm Leo McKenzie. I've experienced life as both a Premier League footballer and a professional boxer. In this series, we focus on elite athletes and their transition from their sporting careers to civilian life and the struggles which have followed. Both Leon and I have had issues dealing with day-to-day life since departing from the sporting arena. And we'll be speaking with several sports personalities who have experienced similar battles following their careers in elite sport. Tonight on TalkSport, we're in conversation with a former Manchester City, Spurs and England footballer, Paul Stewart. Stewart, taking them all on, Paul Stewart. Terrific play. But here's Paul Allen and Paul Stewart with a chance for Spurs. And the equaliser. Paul Stewart scores. And Spurs are back in the cup final. Stewart. The Spurs play it right here. It could be settled. What a cracker from Paul Stewart. Paul Stewart's played for several clubs over the course of a professional football career, which spans nearly two decades most notably with Blackpool, Manchester City, Tottenham Hotspur and Liverpool. He was a member of the Spurs side which won the 1991 FA Cup, scoring in the final in the 2-1 win over Nottingham Forest. He was capped three times at senior level for England, while also representing his country at under-21 and B-team level. In 2016, Paul disclosed he'd been a victim of child sexual abuse during his time playing youth football. And today, he is involved in promoting safeguarding awareness to academies in the EFL. Well, we'll be joined by Paul in a moment. And this interview, Leon, will be dominated by child sexual abuse, something which Paul suffered as a child at the hands of a football coach. Yes, Steve, this is a delicate subject for me. Um, We've both got kids ourselves. We've had a former guest on to speak about the child abuse situation he had in his life. And... It's a hard one for me, Steve, if I'm honest. Yeah, I understand it. It's such a delicate topic. I'm looking forward to hearing what Paul has to say because it's affected his whole life from 11-year-old, mm. everything he's done in life. Um, and it's going to be a privilege to sit opposite him while he tells what is going to be a heartbreaking story. After the lights go out on Talk Sport. 
Well, let's give a big well welcome to tonight's guest on After the Lights Go Out here on TalkSport. It's a very good evening to welcome Paul Stewart. How you doing, Paul? I'm okay, Leon. Thank All you. the way from Blackpool. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long journey. A long journey, yeah. Paul, uh, you enjoy the, a fine football career which lasted the best part of two decades. It all came to an end in 2000 with a non-league football club, uh, Workington. What were your memories of calling it a day and the plans that you had when you was doing that? I don't think I had any plans. When I went to Workington, if I'm honest, it, uh, it brought the love back for the game. And what I mean by that is that because it was non-league, you had lads that were working, sometimes working nights, and then turning up for uh, the games and for training. And it just showed the, the, the passion that they had for football, even though they weren't playing at the top level. And I remember through my career, if we played a game on a Wednesday night, for instance, or a Saturday, and we were called in on a Monday to do training or, or a Thursday to do training, we'd be moaning about having to train because we'd played a game. And I think you get swept up on a roller coaster sometimes when you're actually playing the game at a professional level and don't realise what a privileged position that you're actually in. And playing at Workington made me realise uh, what a privileged job I had. And it wasn't really a job. Playing football isn't a job. But it made me realise that, that, that I probably took it for granted an awful lot as well. Paul, when you was, uh, I think you just turned 36 years old, there was a, a situation when you was actually in a jacuzzi in a hotel in Blackpool and you're doing a lot of reflecting over that actual situation of where you was. Can you tell me a little bit about that circumstance that you felt that you was in, in terms of being the jacuzzi, having a big reflection, and, and kind of just wanting to to get out of the place you were? Yeah, I mean, I was in a, I, I was in a bad place. Do you know, nobody prepared you for the end of your career. There was no advice around. There was no help mm. in terms of, you know, when you're finished... We need to sort of look after you and make sure that you can go into society and bring something to society. And I sat there and I, I, I just thought I wasn't, uh, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't contributing, you know. Am I retired? Am I not retired? Where am I going to go? And, and all you could see was, was like a black hole in front of you of more issues that I had that I'm sure we're going to talk about and, and no way out, if you know what I mean. And you have to pull yourself out of it. You have to try and pull yourself out of it. So I, I decided to go into business and I learned another language and I thought that I'm going to try and pull myself around. And you know what, it, you know, when you were at a football club, everything mm. was done for you, wasn't it? You know, when I finished, I didn't know how to make a dentist appointment, a doctor's appointment, or, you know, checking at an airport. It was all like, what do you mean you've got to do this? It's, and, it's and, I know it's, it, it is yeah, the truth. It's the truth. And, and, and then you get a, a sharp shock of reality. Trying to get something on the other side is, is very, very different. How different did you find it when you said you, you set up your own business? What was that word entail and did you feel as though that sort of got you on the right track to feeling as though your, your life's starting again? In some ways, yeah. I went into it totally blind, if I'm honest, Steve. So it was advertising, I didn't, yeah, was it? Uh, yeah. I didn't have, have a clue about employing people, what the process was. Um, I just had an idea and thought I'd run with it. But again, you know, all during that time I was experiencing problems with, with my, my, my mental health, if you will, and other things that were happening in the background that, again, I wasn't, I wasn't 
fully committed, if I'm honest, in terms of I was probably there every day, but wasn't, if you know what I mean. Uh, totally. some, some days I'm, I'm, you know, I was just useless because of, of what I got involved in the night before. Sometimes I wouldn't turn up full stop because of the states that I got myself in. When you go back to, you know, like that retirement process, there's bad habits that can come into play. I never done drugs, never really drunk as such, but I had other bad habits that affected my life. In terms of your, your own life, I believe that you got into cocaine and alcohol was, was a big part of, of your life. Talk to me about what goes through your mind when the first time you, you decide to say, do you know what, I'm going to try this. Because I've, I've mm. never done it, but I've had other bad habits that have affected my life. Because there's a lot of athletes that seem to, to touch this drug. What is it about this drug and what made you say, today's the day I'm going to take that? Well, I'd always struggled through my career. You know, even now when I when I do the work that I do at the uh, football clubs, I show show the the youngsters my career and explain to them that I never enjoyed it because I had this sort of empty soul, if you will. What I tried to do while I was playing, I started taking cocaine when I was at Spurs, and for me, it was masking a problem that I hadn't addressed. Right. It was as simple as that, and. Once I took that first line of cocaine, I didn't have a problem in the world, not one problem. The problem becomes when you take the next line and the next line, and then, as they say, one's too many. A thousand's not enough, and everything then gets compounded. You know, I've, I've suffered suicidal thoughts, depression, but that all gets compounded with the drug. But the initial taking of the drug was try to... As you quite rightly said, numb the pain, but for me it was to cover something up that had happened long, long time ago. And whilst I didn't realise at the time, that was how it manifested itself. That mm. was the issues that led to me taking the cocaine and the ecstasy. You know, I, I, I'm happy to say I was, I was hooked on it twice where I, I had to go and get um, professional help because there was only one way I was going to go if I had carried on doing the drugs and I, I know that so, so that was was it during your career during my career and, and after was, was it, it worse after or was it kind of the same sort I don't of? I don't think it can, it can ever get any worse you know when I was at Liverpool and if you look at the stats for Liverpool I played 32 games you know in four years I think I was good enough to play 332 but I'd gone on that road of you know self devastation if you will and, and demise whereby the club just didn't want to know me, you know, and I was I was then confined to just training with the kids most of the time, which just as a player in any sport, you know, you, you, you sort of, that doesn't help the mental state, does it? Is this when they, the club sort of find, found out about what's going on in your life? I think so, yeah. We, you know, oh, let's put him with the kids as in mm. like a punishment sort yeah. of thing. Yeah, I, I and, 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 and like I say, you think nobody knows. I probably chose to ignore it but I got the, the, the nickname Cokehead and I know other players have had that but do you know at the time it's so difficult because you don't understand the reasons you're doing it but the problem you have is because that line lifts you up you want to do it the next day so you're not in such a dark place but that is the worst thing you can do and all I was doing the next day was waiting for the chance to, to, to have another line so that I didn't have them... Feelings. Feelings yeah. of, you know, 
it's very difficult to explain the feelings, but I, I, I just, and you know, and I use this phrase a lot when I talk about my, I just felt like I had a, an empty soul. I just wasn't in a frame of mind to really do what I wanted to do, which was, you know, when we wanted to be footballers, we were dedicated. I just did a 360 and, you know, anything else but football would have done. What about the family, Paul? When you were going through what, you, what you've said, which was sort of drink, drugs, mm. drink, drugs, sleep, work, repeat, and all the way through, where did the family fit in this and how did they cope with what was going on from the outside? I'll be honest with you, Steve, I just heaped devastation on my family. I often talk about my my personal experiences and I talk about being on drugs. I had the relationship problems. I'd go missing for days and weeks on end whereby my family didn't know where I was. They had no idea. I was never there for special birthdays, special occasions, you know. So you missed... I missed an awful lot. You missed your children's birthdays? Yeah, I missed... Special birthdays, I'm not saying every birthday, no, yeah. but a few times, you know, when you get your 16th and your 18th, yeah. uh, one of my daughters 16th, so I was in Spain absolutely obliterated on cocaine. Wow. You know, I was never outside school, you know, when there were youngsters from, for them to run into their uh, father's arms as, as kids do. Never went to parents' evening because I was too busy, consumed within the problems that I had, drinking and drugs and... You know, I have to say, I, you know, it's, it remains one of the biggest regrets. And the reason I say that this week just passed on Monday was the two-year anniversary of my wife passing away. She oh, passed right. away of cancer. And one, I have to live with knowing I heap that devastation upon her. And two, I never got to tell her I loved her. Paul... In November 2016, you revealed you had been sexually abused for four years by a football coach when you were a boy. Just tell us about how you kept that secret, not only for 40 years, but then what made you go public with it? I think keeping it secret, I always put it in three stages, um, Steve. When I was when I was 10 years of age, when it, when it first started happening, and a middle-aged man says, if you say anything... I'll kill your mum and your dad and your brothers. And if you want to be a footballer, this is what you've got to do. Wow. Is that what we, that, that was told to you? That was told to me the first time, after the first time I'd been abused in the car. That's, he just whispered that in me. Just shot on my 11th birthday. And, you know, you're talking a middle-aged man. And trust me, you believe yeah. them when they say that. Then, when I progressed as a, as a young apprentice at, at, at Blackpool... I didn't want the coaches to think I was a problem. You know, I didn't want them to think I was somebody that was complaining about stuff. So I chose to keep it quiet then. And then I always say when I when I ended up sort of playing at the top of my profession and you sat next to people like Lineker, Gascoigne, Rush, Barnes, it's embarrassing. So you'll find a way not to say anything. And I thought that I would take my story to my grave, if I'm honest. And... I'm working in November 2016, reading a national newspaper, and there was an article in there, and it was like reading my own story about a, uh, a lad that had been abused when he was a youngster. And I just felt compelled to support the lad because this lad hadn't played at the highest level, and we all know what the media like. It'll be next week's fish and chip paper, won't it? And, 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 and I thought, I've got a platform here, and I've played for some of the biggest clubs in the country. I think if I go public, it might help. I didn't expect 
the tsunami of individuals that came forward following, you know, me, my disclosure. And so the story that you saw initially with the kids yeah. coming through, that's compelled you to say, you know what, I'm going to speak. That's That was your trigger to say, I'm going to go and now speak. Well, what I actually did was there was a, uh, a journalist contact details email address at the bottom. And I started an email back to, to this journalist saying I'm a former international footballer Played for, and then I suddenly realised I'm, I'm professing now to tell the nation. It actually went global the story, but I'm professing to tell the nation about what happened to me as a child. Hadn't even told my wife, hadn't even told my children, hadn't even told my mum and dad. So fortunately, I didn't send that email off, and I chose that weekend to tell my wife, tell my children, and and let me tell you that, that, that I wouldn't want this on on any any child son or daughter to have to drive the two miles like I did to my parents and, and explain that the coach they'd invited into our home and in fact ended up living with us had abused the son for uh, a four year period daily it, you know it's just not something that you, you would wish on anyone but that's what I chose to do You said daily Yeah. that's not just a figure of speech that's what happened to you from 11 year old for four years daily yeah, every day, including Christmas days, oh. birthdays. He he became so entrenched in the family and lived, he lived at our home. And to be honest with you, uh, Steve, I didn't know when I got in the car whether I was going to get beaten first or sexually abused. I knew I was going to get sexually abused, but depending on his mood, he would beat me. And that would be if he saw me engaging with my brothers or with my own family or if he thought I was being disrespectful, then I'd get in the car and he'd punch, bend my fingers back, punch me in the arms and legs, but then sexually abuse uh, me. How old was this Frank Rupert at the time? Um, I would say mid-30s. I'm disgusted. I've got four girls, you know, one of them being 11. It's so brave of you to even come mm. and sit here today and just be so open about what's happened because I understand about the embarrassment and shame that you must feel in the time that you're actually going through it, by the way. But to have that abuse done to you day in, day out, it's disgusting. And I'm so proud of you to even, you know, be the man you are today and realising that that step that you made from actually just speaking out in the first initial process to get this going, it's a big deal, mate. So um, Thank you. You know, I've it's very hard it's very hard it, it to speak is. about this type of subject because you know when it comes down to abuse in terms of children I, I had a situation when I was a child myself but that was with a, uh, an older woman but you don't realise it when you're in them ages of actually what it is and what it falls into and you don't realise the, the trauma that it causes when you do become an adult yourself and that's where when we were playing in our days and obviously he was a bit before me the mental health side of it is so far away because like you said back then we just like they just look at coaches and that would be like oh he's, he's just weak like get over it he's no good for the team mm. and he's just weak minded you yeah. know the same old sort we of we had to grow cliche. up quick we had to really grow but, up quick and be so thick skinned Steve yeah. but Leon we've done the show now for, for three series and other than probably Kieran Dyer we haven't had this subject but Paul I can't imagine what you what you've gone through at 15 year old 
where do you possibly go from a, a thought process to try and as well as not rebuild your life but to actually go on and eventually play international football with that round your neck well I think I think just to put in to perspective and, and you know I come on here because I want to talk about this openly I've been given a platform to be able to help other individuals that suffered to hopefully come forward and speak but you know th- this might sound ludicrous to you but the abuse when it was happening I don't think was the worst thing that happened to me in life because as a child when the abuse was happening I would pretend I was playing at Old Trafford or I was playing at Wembley for me, the impact it's had on my adult life has been far worse. And the impact of my behaviour and what I have done on my loved ones has been even worse. And when you're abused as a child, you get stripped of all emotion, all of the ability to love, ability to care. And, you know, I was with my wife 33 years and never once said, I love you. Now, Kieran said that, didn't I he? don't. Don't cuddle yeah, my yeah, children. Did, yeah. Kieran's a good friend of mine as well, and, and he Kieran was very that. new to me, the things that he was expressing as well, what he went through. The trauma can respond to you in such a way where you actually just do not cope with growing up into, like, you know, the real, like, life itself. Mm. Like, you, you, you mask so much, again, in different ways, and now you're an adult, you fall into those habits of it becomes self-destructive, you push the people away that you love, yeah, which yeah. I did pretty much most of my life, just push the people away that Same actually here. adored me and loved me. And it's a very lonely place. Um, so lonely. And, so lonely. And, and that loneliness is sometimes what grips us as individuals to go down avenues of self-destructiveness just to, to stop feeling so rubbish. And that's the way I would generally break it down, Steve, you know what I mean? I think that's perfect way of breaking it down. Yeah, yeah absolutely, 100%. And I say it's such a, a difficult subject to talk about mm. that, Paul, you've obviously since since 2016, you've reached out to a lot of people who have been in a similar boat. You played with a couple of players. You shared a dressing room who you probably mm. never th- expected that no. they've gone through the same as you. I just want to touch on, when you read that article in the Daily Mirror, Mm. The first initial emotion was there some sort of relief there to say I can actually speak about this now. I think it was shock, Steve. When I, when I read it, I didn't expect it, and, and I think my, my first thoughts were because it was only it wasn't front page news. I was thinking this story could end up going nowhere, and that was my first thought. Of course, it stirred many memories because it, you know the mo is exactly the same, so it stirred the memories, but. I just felt compelled to try and support Andy, first and foremost, but I wanted people to know because I knew other people who'd been through it. You know, I knew there'd been countless others before me and countless others after me. I was in a little bit of a bubble, Steve, because I thought maybe it's just happening in the northwest, you know, just in my area. And then when the story broke and it was every corner of the, uh, of the UK and beyond, it made you realise maybe that, it wasn't, you know, for the first time, it wasn't your fault. Yeah. Mm. Do you know, these people are out there and they they manipulate and manoeuvre and it probably was a little bit of, for the first time, me thinking it wasn't my fault and and, and then I was instantly compelled to, to tell my story but I needed to make sure that my wife, my children and my mum and dad were okay with me 
going public, Doing which that. which they were, they were. Were they very supportive well, in the process? How 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 did you? F- I mean, that must have been so hard for I, your family. I, t- I tell you, my wife was very very supportive. My kids were angry, and I'll tell you why they were angry because they felt that somebody had stolen their childhood. Yeah. And what I mean by that is because of my actions, somebody had taken away their childhood or what they should have had as a childhood. And I don't make excuses for my behaviour because nobody forced me to to do what I do. But the kids started to understand the dad a little bit more. And they're adults now. My my eldest is 35 and you're my youngest okay? is 25. Yeah. And they're, they're good, as good as they can be, you know, mm. losing uh, the mum. The difficult thing is, and you don't realise this, when I went to, uh, when I went to tell my mum, she supported me. Uh, resoundingly, bearing in mind she'd seen me an awful lot being thrown out of the home, you know. Uh, so I had to go and stay with my mum when I was in so many states. My dad said, if I'd have known son, I'd have killed him. But what, what you don't realise and what people don't realise is the wider impact it has on a family. My dad's health has deteriorated unbelievably since 2016. Mm. My mum says to me, he doesn't sleep at night, Paul, he has nightmares, he wanders about all night. And she said one thing that, and it, it upsets me uh, an awful lot. She said, and I'll be honest with you, when I wake up, I see his face. When I go to bed, I see his face. Now, people need to understand that it's not just the individual who's abused that goes through and struggles. You know, it's loved ones, it's parents, it's, it's children. And this is why I do the work that I do and will continue to do the work that I do because people need to understand the wider impact of abuse. Did you get help from anybody? You said you, you, you sort of your wife helped you when you were in your plane days, but did professional help come in the way of the governing body, the PFA, did the FA, or, because you played for England? Mm. To be fair, any of these come into the equation and say, right, we can help you. A senior player come up to you and say, I think you need help here and I think this is the number you need to ring. Yeah, and, and to be fair, both the PFA and the FA to a certain extent have reached out, but I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that the FA have been have been um, great in this situation. When, when, you know, if I go back to when the story broke in 2016 uh, about the, the abuse that a lot of us endured as, as children, they offered us and brought us down to Wembley. You know, we had, we had meetings with them. But when I look back and reflect on that, was it just to keep us close to arms so that, you know, when the story does break and nobody wants to be responsible for what happened? Because... Listen, it happened in a uh, in a grassroots setting, if you will. But these coaches were associated with football clubs that run these Sunday league teams that abused a lot of you know my colleagues and myself. And and you know somebody should be responsible for that. Somebody should have been checking. My abuser was had three convictions in the mid sixties. He still gets to go and work at a professional football club. Yeah, hold that, please. Level five. Thank you. Ah, you must be one of our new interns. Yeah, hi. Nice to meet you. Hi. Now, the most important thing to know is to Ertzen the Biparcel Rise plug sale. The most important thing is what? Sorry. The single most important thing is to Ertzen the Channelized Bimbingus at the Biparcel Rise plug sale, and you'll be fine. Uh, yeah, that sounds important. Does work chat all sound like gibberish to you? Find collaborative articles with tips from the LinkedIn community to help you get through those tricky conversations. 
Making work make sense? LinkedIn knows how. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. After the lights go out, Leon McKenzie and Steve Harmison in conversation with Paul Stewart on TalkSport. Paul, I just want to pick up, you talked about meeting with the FA. You had a meeting with Greg Clark. How did that go and were they responsive to, to what happened? I'm sure they were sympathetic, but was there a, a time in the in the past where you thought, I'm not going to come out with this because they'll just... They turned a blind eye. Where were the FAR stance on this? Because a lot of these guys who were were the abuser were coming mm. through FAR sort of channel and coaching. Yeah, I mean, when we came forward, um, there were five of us that were invited to Wembley in the big boardroom. And as you said, quite rightly said, Greg Clark was there. There were there were people from the police. There was, the, you know, the boardroom was full of, of individuals that were going to going to help. And Greg Clark said that uh, you know. He will do everything he can to help the guys. Then we got uh, invited down again. Same sort of thing. And, and, and I slowly, as I started to, do, to, to understand everything, Steve, was, was, was realised that we were just being kept close to the chest so that we didn't go rogue and start saying anything detrimental to associations and, and governing bodies. Well, anyone that knows me is I'm not somebody that... Uh, will be kept quiet um, if I've got something that's valid to say. So I decided that I uh, I would take it with a pinch of salt. You know, I'm not saying that they didn't have good intentions. I think they could have done more for the individuals that have, that, that have struggled. And I'm not just, you know, I'm seriously not talking about myself because I am fortunate in how I am. But some of my colleagues took their life from the experience that they endured as a child. And, you know, if that isn't enough to say these guys need looking after, then I don't know what is. So I think a lot more could have been done, Steve, is, is probably what I should have said as a, as a, as a quick answer. Mm. And when we, when we go back to it, when I was sort of retired, uh, I reached out to the PFA at the time. And like you say, sometimes I felt at that particular time it was sort of past the buck. But that's where it was then. As things go on and years go on, obviously, you know, Sporting Chance are doing a lot, yeah. um, doing some great things with them. The PFA, I've got different members now, uh, Chief yeah. Executives. Jason Lee is a good friend of mine. I know he does a lot around 
you know the education and and mm. and helps people with uh, mental health issues and so forth it took something like and, and when we look at the abuse side of it and what they're doing for for the lads that came forward that were abused it, it took them to come forward for the, them, for them to, to happen. put the put the backside in gear yeah. if you know what i mean and yeah. i i i've seen that there are things in place now for for the guys you know there is help there is um people that they can go and see if they if they're struggling but it took such a awful story to come out for a governing body to put the backside in gear now mm. that that shouldn't shouldn't happen it shouldn't and, and you found out when your abuser died in 2005 i think it was but you also found out that lancashire police had something that they could have took him to court two years previous mm. that's just a i think another prime example of society turned a blind eye yeah and, and you know what i could and you know I, I go back to where i am today and you know what, what i do i mean i could i could dwell on that past yeah. and say that the police missed it that you know the fa should have done something but I, I i'm of i'm of that ilk now steve where if i keep thinking about the past then my abuser still has a hold over me yeah. What I what I've got a chance of doing and with the platform that I've got is affecting the future. So now I don't look at what could have, should have, might have happened because I don't want him to have any more of a hold over my life than he already has done. Yeah. So I just I just look forward. Going to the mental health side of it, like many guests we have on we, we usually touch on, on you know, the mental health side. You suffered bouts of depression and also you've been very open about the drug addiction and, and alcohol situation. Mental health would come in line with those things and reasons for why, for, you're, sure. for why you're going through those addictions. When was the first sort of noticeable effect on your life with depression or anxiety? I think I, 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 I always, through my football career, suffered depression. I just didn't. I didn't know what it was like. I didn't Same. understand it. So I'd, Same. I'd, you know, for me, it's like a dark cloud that's two miles away. I can feel it coming, this dark cloud, but I'm powerless to stop it. And as, it, as it's arriving, you know, I'm not thinking rational. I can't sleep. I've detached myself from my whole family. And by the time it's over my head, that's it. You know, there is no way I don't, I you know, because of, the problems I had through my childhood and, and I, I didn't feel that I could talk to anyone because I wasn't open so I decided to to fight it myself which is probably the worst thing you can do as you will probably know but I didn't really understand it was depression then it was only when I finished playing that I understand what what depression was and do you know the first first time after I finished playing when uh, when I when I felt that dark cloud coming I just texted my wife and said sorry I know I haven't been speaking, but I just don't feel right from a text. And that's 33 years marriage, and I had to text my wife because I knew that I'd detach myself from the family unit. I'd be in one room. I wouldn't be talking to my kids or my wife, and they didn't understand why. And I realised then that depression, what it was and how it affected me, because I think it affects us all different, doesn't it, depression, you know, in different ways. And I then understood that I could intervene her early if you know what i mean when mm. i can, when when i start to see the dark cloud i can i can start to do something and talk about it but prior to that i wouldn't speak so nobody really understood why i was behaving like i was and you went for help 
at what point did you feel as though you were going in the right direction when you've either spoke or medication or anything that, that yeah i mean i i've been on medication for a long time um because i you know i've always struggled with sleep with everything so i've always gone to the doctors Same. um for something so i've been on medication i think you know what 2016 for me steve was was probably the turning point of my life really because when i look back it was a struggle to come out and tell my story you know because you get you get pulled from pillar to post and you're on this mm. tv and everything so you're on a, a, a roller coaster of emotions but as the years have gone on i'd probably say that that was the start of my recovery 2016 which you know it's a long, long time. I'm 58 now. Uh, it's five years ago. And I think step by step, I've started a recovery into hopefully, hopefully, finding some solace for the few years I've got left. And that would be, for me, the best thing I could do, is just find some solace. Because mm. if I wake up and I'm happy, I feel guilty. And you have these emotions and you don't ask them to come into your mind. Nobody, you know, it's not like you're thinking about and want them to come into your mind. And honestly, I just, I just think that it's a daily process that we're working at to try and be better. But I don't think it's ever fixed. It's just how we manage it. Paul, I'm going to ask you about your book. Yeah. You talked about 2016 being mm. the turning point. Mm. Book come out 2017. Obviously, 2016, you'll have been talking about it and, and mm. putting it into print how it was that because i remember doing mine and i thought it was like so therapeutic going through times and it was like i was going through times negative times feeling good about myself because i thought i'll beat you i beat that time because i was talking a lot about my experiences but also feeling the emotions that was going through my head at that time how was the book for you for me it was again another part of my healing process because I put down into words exactly how I felt, the situations that I went through. But what, for me, it was, was trying to get my own voice through the book, Steve. So, you know, I struggled a little bit with the publishers because they, you know, once I sent, you know, a chapter, say, for instance, it would be dressed up with words that I didn't use and I couldn't hear my own voice. And what I, you know, simply... Like today's uh, chat that we're having, I want it to be my voice that comes through and the honesty and the truth. And Authentic. it was a struggle. Yeah, it was a struggle because I also wanted my, my family to have an input and the impact it had on them. And then when you read that in real terms, what you've done to your family, do you know, it's hurtful. So it was a roller coaster, I guess, of emotions, but. Do you know, when I got there, I'm more proud of that book than my England caps, my FA Cup winners medal, my championship medals that I won. I'm more proud of getting through that book and it's irrelevant to me how many sales it has. I can look at it and say to people, that's the real me that you yeah. read in there. Paul, let's talk about your working life today. You're involved in promoting safeguarding awareness to academies in the EFL. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, uh, I... <laughs> When I came forward, I wanted to come forward to make a difference if possible. And organisations would generally contact me and ask me to go in and tell my survivor story, but I just felt people were feeling sorry for me and pitying me, and that wasn't really why I came forward. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to do something positive and educate, so 
I sort of stopped doing the talking, went and educated myself around safeguarding right up to the highest level, the courses you can do, so I under, understood the landscape. And that then gave me the opportunity with my, with my lived experience to talk to people. Because, you know, when I, when I go into the clubs uh, of the EFL or any organisation where I work, you know, times are different now. You know, mm. we have to understand that the modern-day player faces totally different issues within the game than what we did back in the, yeah. you know, for me, the 80s and 90s. So I, I do deliver my, uh, my survivor story, but there is, there is a reason behind that just to captivate them. And then I educate them around, you know, your social media, your dressing room banter. I mean, Steve and I touched on it earlier when I was at uh, Tottenham. You know, we looked at the dressing room banter and was it dressing room banter or was it bordering on abuse? Mm. You know, you'd, you'd pick on an individual player. Maybe it was the quiet one, whatever. And you would birate them. Now, I always say, you'd think I'd be heightened to that with what happened to me as a child. What did I do? I just jumped on the bandwagon. So I talk about the things that go on within the club, the social media, the you know, the dressing room banter, everything that a modern day player. But ultimately, ultimately for me, it's trying to get them to enjoy the experience that they're embarking on. And I put my 600 games behind me and I say, you know what, I didn't enjoy that because I didn't have anyone to talk to. So for your football career, you would say like, it was just you were just you was playing, but you wasn't really there. Yeah, no. that's incredible. Six hundred yeah. games in. Yeah, no, there was. You know, I struggled to enjoy it. You know, listen, when I was drinking and when I was high on drugs, yeah, enjoyment was there, but that was because I was self-medicating to make myself enjoy myself. The rest of the time, behind closed doors, I was dying inside, absolutely dying inside. I struggled to form relationships just with anyone you know when you get players that are, they're really good at then go and sign autographs and all that and you, you'll remember Leon people used to wait outside the mm. the football ground for hours if I'd have had a bad game or if I was not in the right place and they were waiting I'd just walk past them and ignore them and that I regret so much so you know the work that I do I enjoy because I'm giving something back to the game but moreover it's, it's trying to get them youngsters to enjoy the journey that they're embarking on and, mm. and if they've got an issue, however small, however big, there is networks within the club that they can go and talk to. Do you, Paul, do you think the clubs have got better at it or do you think, because I've always had this opinion about football, where football clubs are abusive because they take kids in at 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, tell them how great they're going to be. Probably one or two kids through the, the age groups get to a full-time professional and the kid never is never seen again he's if he's lucky he's playing for Wilkington he's playing for Ashington mm. he's, if he's lucky at doing that so you're you're going in safeguarding and talking to kids do you think football have got they've got to get their house in order as well to give these kids a chance that if we're not going to make them into professional footballers we make them into professional people and let them go in that way rather than just throwing them out and they end up working in supermarkets or whatever. Because I think, that's, I also think that's a level of abuse as well. That's a great point. And, you know, you said 11, 12, 13, 14. They start taking them in at eight years of age. They're at the club and all they think is that they're going to be a footballer. 
the pressures are even more because the rewards are even higher so you've got pressure off the parents because if if one child makes it Steve that's the family looked after for life yeah. so the pressures are even more now I speak an awful lot about this to I mean, I've spoke to the PFA about it we need an exit strategy because most of the children and I hate to shatter illusions but most of them are not going to end up making the grade you know the statistics are really really low of youngsters making it so we've got a moral responsibility to make sure that we're bringing these children into adults and hopefully when they go into society as I said earlier when we first started they're giving something and they can contribute and they've something to look forward to to do in society at the moment I think you know they come out of the earth shattering news that they're not going to make it and they go into drugs they go into crime I mean footballers come on leaps and bounds you know when you look at the Premier League they have everything that the, the, the kid needs but when we drop down the leagues that's where yeah, I was going there isn't yeah. the, there isn't the resources to be able to 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 help these youngsters and we need to perhaps think about those because yeah. the massive premiership they do have everything that is needed for the modern day player anyway listen paul <laughs> i know you're being so humble right now no disrespect <laughs> but you scored in an fa cup final to score in an fa cup final <laughs> where was your mind yeah. At, it was 2-1. Did you get the first one or the second? First. Right, so where was your mind when you scored that goal? I think, I think first of all, I should explain that, you know, being on the football pitch was my safe place. When I was a youngster, Same. that yeah. was my safe place because I knew nothing could happen to me while I was playing the football. And it remained the same when I played professionally. So I remember thinking because Gazza had got injured, he'd done his knee. We didn't know whether he was going to carry on, but he kept, he kept breaking down. So Pierce had scored from the free kick, so we went 1-0 down. Forest were our bogey team that season as well. They, they, you know, were important games, they nicked it off us. So we weren't going in their favourites. But I just remember Paul when he was being led off. And, you know, when you look round at your teammates, and I felt that the shoulders were dropping, you know, like, right, that's it, we've got beat. And I thought to myself all you've been through in all your life you've strived to get to this place and been through adversity and you're just going to accept because gaza has gone off that we've lost the final and I thought no I just thought to myself no I'm going to do everything I can to try and turn this round and then I uh, I've I fortunately got the equaliser and once we got the equaliser as a team we became stronger and stronger there was only one winners but Whilst I'm on the pitch and when I'm scoring goals like that, and this was when the FA Cup was a coveted trophy, it was, uh, the feeling was immense. It was fabulous. And, and you know, I, I managed to do it in front of, you know, the home, well, the Tottenham supporters. So, you know, that feeling was great. It was, always, it was always off the pitch where things started to, to be complicated. Also on free England international caps. Yeah, you know, to play for your country, represent your country. I'm fortunate that I played at every level for England, right from the under-16s through, through to the uh, the full squad. Again, I wish I'd have been a better frame of mind because you know I turned I turned up drunk to the first uh, get together that we have when they, when they announced the squad. And if you'd have told me when I was a kid I was going to play for England, I'd have gone. That's all I ever wanted. First time that I'm selected for the squad, I turn up drunk to the, the hotel where we're meeting. Wow. How did that go down? And against Germany as well. 
Yeah, against West Germany of all teams, Steve. Well, to be honest, the, the manager wasn't in there. You know, the lads, and you know, it was a drinking culture anyway when yeah. we were playing football, Leon, but, you know, I'd been out all, because we met on a Sunday evening, I'd been out all Sunday day drinking. So when I got there, you know, I sat and had dinner, but I, I couldn't even tell you what we ate. Couldn't even tell you what was put in front of us. You know, and I feel so bad having to admit that, but then... I wouldn't be being honest, you know, yeah. I wouldn't be being honest with you guys. And that was, you know, going back to what we talked about earlier on in our, in our uh, sessions about where my head was at. Again, I say I played 32 times for Liverpool. I think I could have played more. Played three times for England. I think I could have played more. If only I had this head on that I've got now when I was playing. Paul's been absolutely amazing to get an insight on so many things. And, and thank you for your honesty and openness because I'm sure this will help so many others as well but what does the future hold for Paul Stewart? Well the work that I'm doing within football and other organisations uh, recently developed a an online safeguarding course with, with the help of some of my colleagues from sport including Lineker, Brian Moore, Ian Poulter, uh, Kevin Sinfield, Kelly Cates from Sky Sports so we've developed a, a training course so it can educate coaches, parents, you know, anyone that's uh, got a touch point with kids just have to take this course. It has videos with me talking about my experiences, videos from the likes of Gary Lineker and, and the other individuals that I mentioned talking about their life experience. But the mo most important thing, it educates all the way through. Mm. So I'm happy and very proud to be a part of that. I'll just continue. I've decided that my vocation in life now is to try and help as many others and and make sure I'm only one person that nobody has to experience what I experienced in life and I say to myself I'll probably get up and cry today because I talk about the emotive things about my family and I always say if I can save one child's life then I'll get up and cry every day just before we finish Paul how do we get to that safe garden course because it is it's an online course it's yeah. free of charge where it's, do we find it it's www highspeedtraining.co.uk forward slash sport and it's completely free brilliant absolutely amazing Paul from me and Liam it's been an amazing experience listening to you tell your story um, and we wish you every success in the future thanks man thanks, thanks for inviting me on thank you guys God bless me Isaac Quainall, Tom Stewart. Now that KO has 4K, people will see every detail. I better wash my hair. Oh, I'll book in a spray tan. Maybe a manicure? I'm shining up my tats. Experience amazing detail with 4K. Now on KO. 